Welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed-indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale medical graduate and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and in this series, we're taking you through the past, present, and future of medical technology. This episode is the first of three episodes devoted to YJBM's September 2018 issue on medical technology. Uh, And you can find this issue on the YJBM's website or on PubMed. I am your host, Amelia Hallworth, a second-year graduate student in the microbiology program here at Yale. And I'm your co-host, John Ventura. I'm a six-year student in the microbiology program. And today we are honored to have joining us Dr. Joanna Radin, Associate Professor of History and History of Medicine at Yale University. She is the author of Life on Ice, A History of New Uses for Cold Blood from Chicago University Press, which is a history of biobanking and cryopreservation, and co-editor with Emma Cowell of Cryopolitics, Frozen Life in the Melting World from MIT Press, which discusses ethics of freezing and preservation. And thank you so much for coming into the studio today. To begin, perhaps you could introduce yourself provide our listeners with a brief summary of your work and your academic interests. Sure. I might do that um, slightly biographically, if that's okay. That's fine. Um, So I didn't set out to become an expert in freezers and um, frozen (laughs) blood, Um, but um, I did, um, I have had abiding interests since I was an undergrad in how people with technical expertise communicate with people who have decision-making power. And that led me to work after college for um, the CD, for actually a media relations firm that supported the CDC's um, Office of HIV, STDs, and and TB. And it was there that I first got interested in the question of biobanking and population health epidemiological data and working there, kind of developing more the back end of how epidemiological messages get to the public. I really got interested in the technics of it. You know, like how was this information being collected? How did people make knowledge about this? And I had just enough awareness of this thing called history of science Mm -hmm. to think, oh, I'll go and I'll get a PhD. The idea not being to wind up as a professor at Yale, but maybe to develop my own kind of communication consulting firm and maybe do it a little bit better. Um, Nonetheless, I went to grad school in history of sociology of science at University of Pennsylvania and um, got interested in um, post-World War II effort to assemble large-scale collections of blood and tissues that represented human biological variation. And um, when I was looking at the field notes of um, the scientists that I was studying, I was really surprised to see how enamored they were with what was then a relatively new technology of lab freezing. And Mm -hmm. as uh, micro grad students, you'll know you can't do your work right without the yeah. Revco and without um, the liquid nitrogen. Um, and so these scientists were just, you know, this is going to change everything. We're going to be able, in particular, the scientists I was looking at wanted to be able to collect blood from in- members of um, indigenous populations that they thought were going to disappear. And the freezer seemed like a kind of time capsule or salvage technology. And I thought, well, I'll just go to the library and I'll get like the best book on the history of scientific freezing and like I'll footnote it and that'll be done. It turned out it didn't exist. That's um, what I was going to say. Yes. Like, it, so, I'm sure it was, it was pro, like a prolific 
So I, I amount of work there. (laughs) So uh, it was fascinating. There had been a lot written about the use of freezing um, in food preservation, and it turns out there's a fascinating history that goes way, way back. in efforts, scientific efforts to um, freeze life as a way of understanding all kinds of phenomena. So I brought the interests that I'd had in human population um, biology together with these new expertise in the technological infrastructure for supporting it. And here we are. There's all of these things that we know are in blood now, like there's DNA from you can sequence it. You could maybe get RNA and figure out what's going on. You could look for pathogens. How much of that stuff were they aware of was in the blood and how much of it was just like collecting it just to collect it? That's a fantastic question and one that became the central um, kind of preoccupation for me in figuring out why the freezer seemed so exciting and what did people think that they were doing. Um, so the time that I'm looking at um, when freezing starts to be taken up um, is the late 50s, early 60s. So people knew about the helical structure of DNA, but nobody was saying, oh, you know, in this blood, we'll one day be able to like read the code of life, you know, in these samples. Um, At the time, there was um, a strong interest in um, serology, blood group typing, um, but also certain kinds of um, immunological issues. So one of the earliest people who was speaking out about the importance of freezing was a Yale epidemiologist named John Paul, who's probably best known for his work on polio. And he was going to all kinds of you know places, both around New Haven, but to Alaska, looking for trying to understand how polio had spread because there was so much that wasn't understood about its etiology, about its origins and and mode of spreading. And so he wanted to, he was hoping he could find blood in like what he saw as isolated indigenous populations that would either demonstrate that um, polio had been there or, and that immunity had developed or that it hadn't. And so he starts talking about um, this idea that if we can freeze these samples, we might be able to know other things too. And he goes back in time to the 1918 flu, which was one of the most um, deadly epidemics, to say if only we had frozen tissue from that flu, we could use these emerging techniques of virology to understand what was going on. And it's this kind of like, um, like, epistemological time travel that is so essential for how people come to imagine what they should save and why they should save it. And I write a lot about a phrase that Paul uses that I think is kind of ubiquitous. He says, you know, we can use these purposes, uh, this blood for purposes known and quote unquote, as yet unknown. Um, So I write in the book um, about the way in which many of these blood samples have come to be used for purposes quite different than that from which they were collected. For example, the earliest traces that we know of HIV were found in these blood samples that were collected for um, purposes, you know, no one was talking about HIV. They were collected for purposes of studies of human biological variation um, or other kinds of epidemiological studies. I also write about how um, more recently 
scientists in one of the labs I spent time with, um, spent time in, are using old blood samples that were collected in the 60s and 70s in the Western Pacific and discovering that there is non-drug-resistant malaria in this human blood. So in other words, because the blood was collected before drugs like chloroquine were introduced, you get this malaria that is purportedly invaluable to science because you can't find it in the world as it is today. But the idea is that if you could um, reenact the evolution of drug resistance, you might be able to tweak the chemical structure of the drugs used to treat it and therefore um, be able to, you know, try again. Um, so it's these kinds of mixings of past, present, and future, and precisely a, a certain kind of faith in the progress of science, which is sometimes misguided, um, that there will inevitably be new uses. So we can never, ever throw these invaluable resources away, which, of course, gets complicated because space is, <laughs> is finite. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in that answer there. Yeah, it was a great <clears throat> and, question. Well, yeah, so we, we can, we, yeah, let's start unraveling a little bit of this. Um, a lot of the examples that you that you use to answer that question, you know, about we're, we're basically trying to argue in favor that's, that some of these people were, were had good intentions and it was for, like, the benefit of the general scientific community, mm-hmm. preserving samples for, for um Information and knowledge that that is that is needed for the for for, for the world in large, mm-hmm. and I'm also interested in what other motivations would have been uh, present mm-hmm. to try to generate this technology. Mm. You Say know, because this was because yeah. post World War II to me implies the Cold War, mm-hmm. and so I was just wondering what thoughts you had on what other motivations might have been there to drive the uh, the push to develop. Uh, cryopreservation of biological samples in the context of the Cold War mentality. Yeah, like that's, War men- that's a very um, attentive, historically sensitive question. And there mm-hmm. are a couple different ways I could answer that. Um, I'll, I'll pick two sort of facets. Um, one has to do with extreme extreme anxiety about the threat of nuclear war, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Anxieties that we've gotten a little taste of um, again recently. Fire Um, and fury, right? (laughs) And this idea, you know, that this weapon had been created and nobody really understood at this time just how um, risky radiation was. They knew obviously about the deaths that had happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And in fact, one of the scientists that I followed, James Neal, had gone to Japan. He was a geneticist to study the survivors to try to make sense of whether or not this, how this radiation was going to impact people over time, because that's one of the insidious features of ionizing radiation is that it makes its effects known through much longer time scale. So this question of like the long-term post-nuclear future was on everybody's mind. So there was the sense of like, how is radiation going to um, 
unfold through life lifetimes and generations. But there was also a more immediate concern about the need to stockpile blood um, in the case of a nuclear disaster and the idea being that, well, we would need to do lots and lots of transfusions. So that comes up too. And the federal government puts in the U.S. puts an enormous amount of money into this in order to make sure that there's an, a kind of infrastructure to support the preservation of, um, of blood and other things. So that, that's one mm-hmm. um, aspect of it. There's also another interesting kind of story here that I don't write about in the book, but comes into play with things like um, smallpox. So we don't think about, when we think about the Cold War, we often think about the bomb, but the Cold War was also a time of competing efforts to like win hearts and minds. Um, and one of the ways that that happened was through public health and, and what we come to know as global health. And the WHO, which is a post-war, um, Cold War institution that comes into being after the Second World War, um, sees a potential in being able to eradicate diseases. They fail with malaria, but they succeed mostly, almost completely with smallpox. It's it's a huge and a hugely publicized public health triumph. Now, the question becomes, well, is it actually fully eradicated? Technically, no, because there's still smallpox in freezers, in two freezers, in the CDC's freezers in Atlanta and in freezers in the former Soviet Union. Now, this is a per- every few years there's a resurgence of concern as to whether or not these samples should be eradicated or if they should persist. And in this way, the Cold War continue. I mean, continues um, through these frozen um, potential bioweapons. That's where really interesting. Some people say, um, you know, these. Are, we can't ever get rid of them because what if there is a resurgence of smallpox? Let's say it comes from the permafrost melting, right, from climate change. Then we want to have lab specimens that we can use to help to innovate um, you know, thera- therapeutic treatments. There are other people who say, you know, this is just a time bomb, like waiting mm-hmm. for some terrorist or, you know, an aggressive political move. Um, there's also been suspicion about whether or not these facilities are as secure as they should be. There have been a number of reports that we've heard from various labs where you put something in the freezer, you forget about it. And um, there have been examples of anthrax being found, samples of anthrax being found where you wouldn't think it should be. So there is a real biosecurity question that persists um, in a geopolitical level from the Cold War. Um, So taking a little bit of a step back, this is the issue on medical technology. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a subjective term. So we were wondering, how would you define the term (laughs) medical technology? And would you consider freezers to be an example of a medical technology? Absolutely. Um, So it is a very broad term. And I'm going to be a little cagey about it and say I'm not interested in offering a precise definition of a medical technology. I think the way I might answer it is a medical technology is any technology that's used in the service of um, medicine and healing. And I think that's not meant to be um, evasive, but to demonstrate just how 
broad that category is, when we think of medical technology, we might immediately think of something really um, sophisticated, like the da Vinci robot. Um, but medical technologies and medical devices, even as they're defined by FDA, also include like tongue depressors, which is basically just like a stick of wood. Um, That's exactly what was on my mind when we thought about this. Yeah. And I think um, for, the, for me, the freezer, while it is, you know, technologically sophisticated, it's such a mundane seeming kind of invisible technology. It's not the sequencer, right? But it's necessary as part of the infrastructure that makes biomedical research possible, not to mention the way that it enables um, kinds of research and, and medicine, including organ transplantation um, and pathology and so much of this almost more behind the scenes work that make things tick, um, especially I think that's relevant for microbiology and laboratory medicine. You know, that's not the point of contact with a patient. But so much of what patients are getting from their clinical encounters is coming um, out of you. And this is something I've talked with Sheldon Campbell um, about extensively, mm. thinking about the role of laboratory medicine. Um, so, you know, medical technology, I think, is a kind of underappreciated category. And what we get, what we count as medical technology and how we think about it um, can really maybe even offer new exciting ways to imagine what medicine can be. So I would say the freezer is absolutely a medical technology, though it's certainly not only a medical technology. Um, and in fact, um, a lot of the way in which, like, I don't know if you know this, um, so you use Revco freezers, right? Or do you use Revco's? They're I would like, have to look. I don't well, know. you should look. You probably do. They're like what, like Xeroxes to like photocopiers. Oh, yeah. They're like like Kleenex to tissues. Like Kleenex to tissues. So they're everywhere. They kind of have the lock on scientific refrigeration. But they started out as an ice cream vending machine company. And it was only in the Second <laughs> okay. World War that they got drafted into the enterprise and started, you know, repurposing to serve the war effort. And then after the war found their niche in this area for the reasons that we've been talking about. And so so much of um, one of the things I love about the history of science is like the way that things travel between realms, that the lab often starts out as a kitchen, right? Mm -hmm. um, and people free putting things in their refrigerators. So a lot of times I'm sure you have regular like household refrigerators in the lab too, and they probably have stickers on it that say like, don't put your lunch in here or like, you know, put your stuff back when you're done. Or um, And I think that's really interesting. You see the, the way in which technologies become um, repurposed by the people using them for different reasons. And I, I would hope that one of the outcomes of the research that I do makes people think differently about the kind of ordinary devices that they rely on without even thinking about it. Yeah, that seems to be a common theme in your work about the, the temporality of, of, of these, mm -hmm. of these um, concepts in particular, not mm -hmm. necessarily of the machines the tangible machines mm -hmm. with the concepts and of and, and of, of intentions and why things are used mm -hmm. and like for, you know, for instance you you talk very much about um, the desire to sample blood motivated for one reason mm -hmm. but then of course this sample is there and it's preserved so of course it could be used for a multitude of different reasons mm -hmm. you, you brought up HIV. Mm -hmm. I mean, HIV's zoonosis into humans mm -hmm. was dated 
accurately because of samples mm-hmm. in, in Africa from 1960, like blood samples with right. that were HIV positive. But just based on what samples we had, it's interesting yeah. to think like what we know is so contingent upon the materials that are available for us to know it. So yeah. it's, you know, how much hinges on a blood sample that happened to stick around that in a freezer that someone happened to pick for another reason it makes you think differently about the stability of our scientific information and the possibilities for revision, right? Like right. what if something was found? It's not implausible, right, to imagine that something else could be found 20, 50 hundred years earlier, if only it were preserved in the right place. So um, one of the things that happens with 1918 flu is that they actually wind up going and digging up bodies out of the permafrost because people have still preserved things. And the first time they do it, they don't have the refined ability to mm. culture, um, you know, to, to, to get to access the virus. Um, but the second time they do it, they do. Um, and you know, this is like, it's like, they joke, it's like nature's freezer. Um, yeah. But it's like, you know, being able to sequence the mammoth, you know. <laughs> absolutely. This is um, the precise um, situation that we're dealing with here. And I just wanted to ask you really quickly about your book in particular. Mm-hmm. There was something that I found was interesting when um, when looking into the subject matter of your book. And you, you talk about, I know I keep bringing, going back to this, but like the, what motivated the mm-hmm. development of this technology. And uh, I was wondering if you could explore a little bit and discuss a little bit about um, what you thought were kind of more culturally biased motives, like like, like this notion of like colonial mm. uh, uh, aspects or post-colonialism that, that, that might have uh, yeah. influenced the push to develop this technology in the way that it was. So by this technology, you mean the freezer? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I have a really um, wonderful colleague named Rebecca Woods who's in Toronto who's written about the history of um, the development of freezing in the global meat trade. Mm. Um, And she explicitly looks at the way the British Empire was interested, say, in um, getting meat from their colonies, right? Cultivating meat in their colonies in Australia, New Zealand, right? To be able to bring to... um, to the UK, so it wasn't just like springtime that you could have lamb. You could have lamb, you know, year round. And they, one of the quotes she uses, and she has a piece in the Cryopolitics volume about this that I love, is like one of the boosters says, "And the seasons shall shake hands." Yeah, um, you know, through freezing. And um, I think that it's actually completely uncontroversial to see the freezer as an agent of colonialism. Um, And um, I have some images in the book. I looked into the history of Electrolux, um, which was also an early developer of of refrigeration and freezing. Um, And you look up their advertisements, and it's all about um, kind of enabling um, kind of Euro-American settlement in places that would not necessarily be um, aligned with the goals of that settlement and bringing freezing there as a mode of power. Mm-hmm. Um, you might also know the book Mosquito Coast by Paul Thoreau. He's a travel writer and it was made into a movie with Harrison Ford. It might be interesting to both of you. Um, but in the movie, there's this guy, he's a tinkerer. He's yeah. like this tinkerer at home, but he kind of has this like... <sighs> 
grandiose, like, sort of savior complex that he's going to move his whole family to the Amazon and build a freezer and a way to have ice and he'll be a god because he'll have made ice. Um, Things go horribly wrong and he's not successful. But this idea that um, the ability to, to, to intervene with temperature to preserve to be able to create an intensified version of stockpiling and storage um, is absolutely a colonial idea and what i also think you might be getting at um, and this was relevant to this particular case that i write about in the book is what does it mean like whose bodies get stored in the freezer that's really one of the things i was thinking of so um, you know, and I just I answered this in a roundabout way because it's not the freezer itself that um, makes this possible. It's what you do with the freezer, right? The freezer doesn't stop time, no. um, but it's how people imagine what they can do with it and why. And of course, the scientists who I'm tracing, you know, are looking at indigenous peoples. They're not talking really to indigenous peoples and saying, what do you need for your persistence? What do you want um, when faced with these kinds of transformations coming from other parts of the world? Um, They even have a hard time, these scientists, recognizing themselves as agents of Mm. the very change that they're lamenting. Um, And instead, the disappearance of these peoples who they call in the parlance of the time primitive um, is that they're already going to be disappeared. And so freezing their bodies or their body parts isn't um, about resurrecting them someday so that they can participate in the singularity or immortality. (laughs) It's not about it's not about um, helping them to cope with their kinds of problems. It's about the idea that the body of the indigenous person is especially valuable to the kind of cosmopolitan um, scientist and the world that they live in. So there's this uh, colonial logic where the indigenous person is seen as both like more than human and less than human. Less yeah, simultaneously. Than, That's what I thought was really yeah, interesting. Yeah, less than human in that um, they don't necessarily deserve to be part of the future of humanity or that the efforts shouldn't be de- used to make that possible, but more than human in that they have special information about who um, we, and I put we in quotes, you can't hear it, see that, listeners, um, but we are and where we are going. And I think this is a logic that we can, that persists. Look at like the paleo diet mm-hmm. or like, um, you know, the ways that we're seeing certain kinds of indigenous ideas um, appropriated as a way of thinking about how we're going to survive even at the time when things like, um, you know, the Dakota Access Pipeline are undermining those um, efforts to live differently um, in the world. So um, it's important for me to point out that the fields of human biology and human genetics that descend, um, you know, from these practices are becoming aware of the need to reorganize and and re consider their relationship to indigenous peoples, um, to really ask, like, what is the role of this knowledge? And of course, I write in the book about um, the present where 
blood samples that have persisted along with indigenous peoples who haven't gone extinct. Um, and there have been moments where uh, of refusal and reclamation where indigenous peoples have said, okay, enough, you've had this blood for you know 50 years and we're not doing any better from it. Like we want it back. This is our ancestors. And that leads to debates. Some scientists say, well, you know, you can't take this back. This is robbing science of its future mm -hmm. potential. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, you know, it's not us who have sacralized this blood. It's you, science, who has decided that this is more valuable than other kinds of resources. And in those debates, um, which I have, from which I've learned enormously, it's made me think really differently about, you know, who are the bodies upon which knowledge period, get made, and how that matters. Um, because I think many members of different indigenous communities have really diverse and fascinating perspectives on um, questions of temporality, right. even the boundaries between life and death um, that science purports to have figured out. But of course, the very project of freezing, um, as I write about in the beginning of the book, some of it emerged from efforts to try to figure out, like, is there a boundary between life and death? Is life a continuous or discontinuous process? If you can stop life, supposedly, by freezing it, then, like, is it life as we know it? Um, and so these are kind of really deep philosophical questions that I didn't realize I was wading into when I started thinking about the freezer. And I guess the last piece I might say there is that I think that the lessons of um, looking at this case and the, the important role that indigenous peoples played in this narrative isn't just to say this is a story that's only relevant um, to indigenous communities. Mm. I think it's one that gives us an, or should give us some ways to think about all of the blood samples of the you know millions and millions of people, including probably each of us, yeah. that are in freezers you know across the street when we use Yale Health, like and we give a blood sample, where does it go? Um, when I talk to people, sometimes they say, "Oh, this is like the Henrietta Lacks story," um, mm -hmm. and in some ways it is in the sense that it's a behind-the-scenes story about biomedical infrastructure that most people don't realize um, they may be playing a part yeah. in. Mm -hmm. um, so I was just actually about to say it sounds a lot like the Henry yeah. Lack story. Um, so I'm I'm kind of curious while we're talking about sort of the ethics of this. Do you think that people's rights over their like biological materials after it leaves their body? Do you think that should vary based off of what is in it, or should it be all the same? Well, um, one of the ways that um, institutions have sought to deal with this question is through the doctrine of informed consent, right? The mm -hmm. idea being that, like, you consent to relinquish rights to this material when it leaves your body. Mm -hmm. And I think what we've seen um, through some of the cases that I describe in my book and more broad um, cultural conversations that don't just apply to science but also apply to sex is that consent is a tricky thing and informed consent is a kind of impossibility. It's precisely for how we started the conversation where it's not possible to know what's going to happen in the future. Mm -hmm. Then what? Can, how can you consent to what you don't know? Um, and so I think that informed consent often functions as a kind of uh, legal technology to protect 
um, researchers, but I don't think it protects, it goes far enough. Um, I don't even think it does a great job of protecting researchers because we see um, a number of different kinds of cases where people say, well, actually, um, you know, this goes beyond what I even could have imagined and it's, it's just not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that you know, there have been a number of other kinds of innovations, people saying, well, we could have tiered consent, you know, so you could say, well, I allow my blood to be used, or my tissues to be used for this, but not that. It can be used one time or three times, but these times it can be used five years, but not 10 years. And, you know, that's an interesting kind of intervention. But more broadly, I think going back to um, what I've learned from indigenous people's forms of contestation is that the freezer acts as a technology, functions to alienate people from um, the from kind of relations of interaction and expertise. And what needs to happen, I think, to produce the best kind of research and the best promises is for materials that come from human bodies to stay close to human persons um, in that research, and this may mean ultimately shortening the time spans that we think about for certain kinds of research materials or thinking differently about what they are, but in order to prevent abuses um, and to prevent, um, I don't know, even to frame it more positively, to produce knowledge that's actually serving the humans whose bodies are being given, um, there's a lot of value in strengthening the relationships that scientists have with the people that they um, ask for their bodies. Uh, So it's a complicated question. I don't have an easy answer, but it's one that I'm I'm trying to help people think about more carefully because... um, it seems like a profound, important, a profoundly important um, moral and epistemological yeah. issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we're unhappy with the way that um, medical research often is oriented towards benefiting pharmaceutical companies' developments of Me Too drugs, as opposed to um, you know making access to medicines more broad, the opportunity to speak with people from communities who are affected, whose bodies are being used in these studies, um, seems to me a really profound one that we shouldn't shirk, which is another reason why I think bringing humanities into medicine and seeing them and as connected, not having science and technology over here on one side, you can't see this, um, and medicine um, and science on the other side, um, or I can't remember what the divisions I just made, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah, Seems. they're not like overlapping, like no, non-overlapping you magisteria. That's you know, right. you don't want them like that. Right. Um, you want them that's to be right. intersecting. You want them to be intersecting, which they actually in practice are. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, as we as we slowly wind down in the interview here, I was hoping you could help maybe introduce our listeners to some literature. Like, what two books would you uh, recommend to help someone, you know, ease themselves into the history of medicine, the history of of medical technology in particular, or or something that you found very influential? Yeah. Um, so one book that I will recommend that isn't explicitly about medical technology, but I think is a really um, 
lucid effort to demonstrate the need for thinking about the relationship between technical and social orders is a book by um, a, a colleague I really admire at Santa Cruz named Jenny Reardon. The book is called Race to the Finish. Um, and it's about the Human Genome Diversity Project in the 90s. But it's more broadly about efforts to think about how do you create social social practices that are keeping up with the technological innovations. And it's a book that is written in such a kind of clear and accessible way um, that I think is a really great um, resource. And, and in particular, Jenny directs, um, is a founding director of a center for um, genomics and society, or, and, or for science and justice, I should say, at Santa Cruz, where there's a lot of this kind of practical work happening. So it's worth checking her out. Um, and then, um, I would say another book that I found really influential and helpful for me in thinking about this is by a scholar named Kim Tallbear, and it's called Native American DNA. Mm. Um, and she's looking at the kind of what we might see as the technologies of um, genetic testing and genetic analysis and the ways in which that plays out in indigenous communities. And I think that's it's a, also a very accessible, fascinating book that offers some surprising insights um, about how indigenous peoples are um, responding to and um, dealing with in co- complicated ways um, these kinds of, of innovations. Yeah. Those sound really cool. I might have to look some of those up. <laughs> Um, I know. Can I say one more? Yeah, of course. One more that just I think is sort of like a trifecta um, on this. I guess I'm focusing more on like genetics uh, than um, medical technologies is Alondra Nelson, who's um, at Columbia, has a book that came out most recently called The Social Life of DNA. Um, And she looks in particular at how um, African-Americans are using um, genetic technology as a way to connect with ancestors at the same time, ancest- ancestors that they were kind of disconnected from through slavery, yeah. but at the same time, the kind of racialized potentials of the technology. It's another really accessible, fascinating book. And I think read together, they give a really beautiful example of some of the best potentials of kind of history and anthropology and social studies of science. Yeah, That's very cool. Um, so do you have any practical advice for our listeners, especially any like aspiring researchers or aspiring historians of science? Yeah, um, I guess I'll say something that I say when I talk to uh, medical students here, but in general is that um, I would encourage them to see history not as something that's about like the date that something was invented or what, you know, who did it, who did Mm -hmm. the discovery or like as a timeline, but to view history as a resource for doing innovative, exciting work. Um, You know, a lot of just for the reasons we've talked about, sometimes someone had a great idea at the wrong time. Um, Sometimes a problem that was intractable at one moment now is is the right problem for the right time. And especially, too, to look at the ways that people have struggled with um, ethical, political, social challenges in the past can be a real source of inspiration for producing research that is, um, you know, profoundly innovative and not just limited to um, keeping with status quo. So I would say history um, is for everybody, and I'm always happy to talk about it. I love the phrase, like, different efforts to... uh 
to live like differently like you know what I mean like I mean, efforts to live differently that's like that's exactly how I would I would I would convey that kind of the point I think yeah. right like we're all like trying conflicts to and within that make the world better right I think or that's what we tell ourselves <laughs> why we're doing going to grad school um yeah that's what it's supposed to uh help you get up in the morning yeah and you know sometimes we get locked in a certain path dependency that like the mm-hmm. only way to do it is this way um but if you look in the history of science at some of like the biggest discoveries or innovations they're ones that were responding to like like the salk vaccine or like yeah. you know or, or even all the work with hiv like you know this is these are real problems and i say to my so my husband is an infectious disease doctor here so he like it's interesting for us to talk about like how these kinds of questions actually are affecting, you know, what he does. I guess by use, using your uh, advice to young students, it's you know, history can also help help inform you uh, about the ethics of, uh, of of certain decisions in the past and help actually like provide you with role models. Like mm-hmm. I like I, I I just came into my mind because you brought up the sock vaccine because mm-hmm. someone like Jonas Salk to me. Um, uh, made a decision that I find very admirable, where he's like, I, I don't want to truly profit from this. I want mm-hmm. the human race to profit from this. It's like the, you know, the acumen of, of the doctor, like, like what he should be like, or he or she should be like. And I, yeah, so I, like, to me, like, you wouldn't get that if you just had the dry right. Uh, right. education Salk, from uh, the medical his, education. Um, Salk Institute, he really tried to cultivate um, he wasn't successful because people didn't want to fund it, um, but yeah. to cultivate a space for thinking about biology and society. So mm-hmm. some of the first like efforts to do that were happening at the Salk Institute. And just the project that I'm working on now, I'm writing a book about Michael Crichton. Um, I was going to like bring up Jurassic Park yeah. and throughout this conversation, but I didn't know exactly when, but now I do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, are we still recording? Is yeah. That, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, so Jurassic Park, um, yeah, so Michael Crichton was actually, uh, I'll, I'll kind of plug this new book that I'm working on. Go ahead. Um, I did not also plan to write a book about Michael Crichton, but he kept showing up. Um, he actually studied biological anthropology at Harvard with um, many of the scientists who I wrote about in my last book. And I was like, wait, what? You know, what mm-hmm. are you doing here, Michael Crichton? Um, he started off, so he studied bioanthro there. He went on and got his MD at Harvard also. Yeah. And then he went and did a postdoc, or not even a postdoc, I guess a fellowship at the Salk Institute um, and became close to Jonas Salk and regarded him as a mentor um, and was really influenced by um, this idea of thinking about the social implications of science, medicine, and technology. And so I'm interested in Crichton as a kind of really public, popular figure that's both trying to tell people or warn people about some of the dangers of innovation at the same time that he's kind of profiting wildly off of it yeah, and, I mean, you know, and kind of stoking an industry around, like, fear and entertainment. And conspiracy. And conspiracy. Yeah. So it's been really um, fun and fascinating to write and to see how his ideas, where he's taking information from, you said, non-overlapping magisteria. He's like... Oh, I plagiarized Stephen Jay Gould. Yeah, well, he's, <laughs> he's, he plagiarizes Stephen Jay Gould, too. <laughs> like, that's the point. Friend shared with me from the archives, Carr Spahn, 
correspondence between Stephen Jay Gould and Stephen King, who, both of whom who had gotten a hold of an early ver- a pre-publication version of Jurassic Park, and they're like trading notes about it. Wow, that was so, an interesting conversation. Yeah, I mean, in Jurassic Park, actually, there's a Yale dimension too. Um, mm-hmm. Of you know um, John Ostrom, who is a paleontologist here, it was really influential in helping Crichton think about the Velociraptor, the, the Velociraptor villains, I guess, of mm-hmm. uh, Jurassic Park. So I think a lot of the idea—it's not an accident that you were thinking about Jurassic Park, and eventually I couldn't avoid thinking about it either. And it's yeah. precisely because you were thinking about it that I felt like why not take this person seriously? So just like I took the freezer, something that no one was really seeing as medical technology, I'm like, Michael Crichton's the biggest thing in the history of science that nobody's talking about. Um, and so I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way to tell um, a sto- the story of his career, but also the influence of his work on the ways we think about what's scary about science, medicine, and technology. Um, And uh, stay tuned. I'm super excited about that because actually (laughs) one of his books is the reason I'm in science. No way. Tell me more. Now I'm going to interview you. So his book, (laughs) Prey, the main character has this like throwaway line about how he works on like, he's a computer programmer and he works on using like biological systems as a way of solving computer problems. And what he works on I now know is called swarm theory. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the time I was in high school and I was like, I kind of like computer science, I kind of like biology, what do I want to do with my life? And so I decided that that would be something I wanted to do. And I went to college as a biology and computer science double major and uh, eventually got into a lab and realized I was liking the biology part more and more. And now here I am. Amazing. So that's, that's actually super cool. I'm going to have to read this. And I actually will say um, all of Crichton's books from the beginning, ha- computing was a major part of them. Like we often think about him as, I mean, I even think Jurassic Park, we imagine, is a book about the horrors of genetic cloning. And in one sense, Jurassic Park is really a book about the horrors of like, computers, bad computer, like bad, bad IT management, like mm-hmm. having like Newman, you know, from Seinfeld yeah. in the movie, who's like, you know, the nerd that knows how everything works, um, except he's sort of a bad actor. And then the, it's only like when the fence system goes down, right, because mm-hmm. the computer system fails that you have a problem. And I should say that Crichton was an early adopter of computers. He actually wrote a book in 1983 that was sort of like a forerunner for compu- of computers for dummies called Electronic Life. It's a nonfiction book um, about how to think about computers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And every single book of his has a kind of computing element, a computing theme, computer printouts. And mm-hmm. that's a really that's something I'm really interested in in this book. And I'm so happy to know that that's a touchstone for you because while I'm on this podcast, if anyone's listening, if anyone has book reports they wrote about Michael Crichton in school, please send them to me because I'm collecting them. As I talk to people, they're finding, like as their parents give them their stuff and moving, that they have, you know, these book reports they wrote. Like I say, um, you know, I discovered Crichton in like middle school and like he seemed like he was really smart and I could be smart too if I could read his books and play with those ideas. And so I've got a little collection that's growing. um, And I'd love to be able to have them a glimpse into the minds of our adolescent selves. (laughs) Cool. Oh, that's fantastic. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) 
Because I was always also influenced by uh, James Gleek, but I think that might have just been my, uh, like, yeah. when, when, when his book Chaos came out yeah. in the 80s. Well, what is Ian Malcolm? And that's Ian Malcolm was a chaos theorist, yeah. you know, and it's like about the idea of like dynamic systems mm-hmm. having like stochasticity, but they're also predictable. Yep. And that in Jurassic Park, I always thought it had that underlying theme oh, too. Oh, absolutely. It's um, not even underlying. It's there. Go back oh, and it's, read it. It's, it's I mean, because I remember the chapters. You see, like there's a there's like a, a dot. There's like a germ, and then it just starts kind of um, creating like some sort of Mendelbrot series mm-hmm. or something. It's like it just expands outward. Mm-hmm. The same like, in every, Andromeda every... Strain too. Yeah, that's um, right. You did do that. Yeah, it's all there. It's all there. Well, uh, well, we could talk about Michael Crichton forever. Next, po- next uh, podcast for the next <laughs> e- for the next episode. When you do one on microbiology and science fiction, call me back. Oh, we should okay. interview Mr. DNA. Yeah, from the movie. <laughs> that's right. Uh, thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. And thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and to the Yale Broadcast Center to, for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. And thank you to our co-editors-in-chief, Helen Byenson and Fatima Mirza, and the rest of the YJBM editorial board. For more information on YJBM and our podcast, please visit yjbm.yale.edu. Be sure to check out our journal by searching Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine at PubMed.com or following our Twitter feed with the handle at the YJBM. If you'd like to contact us, please email us at yjbm at yale.edu. We'd love your feedback and questions, so please feel free to tell us your thoughts by emailing us. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please share it on SoundCloud or Apple's podcast app. Uh, See you for the next installment of the YJBM podcast. And thanks for listening.